Welcome to the Legacy of John Williams podcast. I'm your host, Maurizio Caschetto. My guest today is legendary harpist Anne Hobson Pilot. Anne Hobson Pilot is one of the most distinguished musicians in the United States. She became principal harp of the Boston Symphony Orchestra in 1980, having joined the BSO in 1969 as assistant principal harp and principal with the Boston Pops, where he performed many times with John Williams. In her 40-plus years career, she also performed many times as a soloist all around the world with many major symphony orchestras under esteemed conductors. Also recorded several albums as a soloist featuring the works of Bach, Debussy, and also contemporary composers. Hobson Pilot retired from the BSO in 2009, and in the same year she premiered a new harp concerto that John Williams wrote specifically for her. It's a celebration of a great woman's life, said Maestro Williams about that work. Composer showed a lot of admiration and even affection for the harpist, often showcasing her talent as a soloist in many concerts and recordings. In this conversation, and talks about her incredible career, the challenges of being the first African-American principal prayer in a U.S. orchestra, and her many collaboration with John Williams.
Welcome, Anne Hobson Pilot. Hello, Anne, and thank you for being here with me today. Hello, and th thank you for having me. As I was telling you before we started recording, uh, I was very eager to talk with you because you are certainly one of the longest collaborators of John Williams, or at least one of the longest serving musician uh, for in the Boston Symphony Orchestra when John arrived there uh, conducting the, the Boston Pops and then the Boston Symphony. Uh, so I'd love to talk about that with you, but as I do with all my guests before jumping into a conversation about John Williams, I'd love to ask you about your musical background information. So how do you decide, did you decide to become a classical musician? How was the path that led you becoming a classical musician? I actually started uh, my music lessons on the piano because my mother was a concert pianist. So that naturally led me to have an interest in classical music. However, uh, because she was such a wonderful pianist and I have a sister who's two years older who also played the piano, uh, I wasn't very encouraged to uh, devote a lot of time to the piano. So when I first went to high school, they had all of the instruments of the orchestra at the where, where I went to school, the Philadelphia High School for Girls. And I wanted to take another instrument and requested a few, violin, cello, flute. And the, the music teacher there said, well, why don't you study the harp? I think they needed harpists at the time. And the harp was similar to the piano with reading, treble and bass clef and all. So, but then I, I naturally, especially on the harp, my interest was in classical music as opposed to say jazz, for example, because in my mind, the harp doesn't really lend itself to jazz because of the complications of the pedals and all. So it was uh, a very good fit. I enjoyed practicing the harp and uh, did, did very well pretty quickly. You were certainly a pioneer in many ways uh, because you were the first African-American woman principal player in any orchestra in the United States. So I'd love to, to talk a little bit about this with you, uh, especially concerning the challenges and the obstacles that you had to face, uh, you know, being a black girl in a predominantly white, male-driven environment, such as the symphony orchestras back then in the 1960s. So how, how did you approach that? Uh, so, and how difficult was with you to face that kind of challenge? Well, I enjoyed playing the harp, as I said, and I enjoyed playing the harp in an orchestra. So my, my, actually my first professional job was playing second harp, um, the Pittsburgh Symphony. My cousin, the, another black woman, a young black woman, uh, was the keyboard player. So I was only there part-time, but you know, I was able to, to be with her. She's a couple years older than I am and, and to kind of watch how she handled her, herself in the, that situation. It was shortly thereafter, I got the job as principal harp with the Washington National Symphony, where I was the only black member, first and only black member. And uh, there were some issues there, but basically because I figured I was hired to play the harp to the best of my ability, that's what I tried to do. And, and I, I generally was, was treated pretty well, pretty respectfully. Yeah. Then I went to Boston after three years as assistant principal and then principal. And so uh, I didn't really consider it 
a difficulty. I mean, other people may have had a problem with me being there, but I was just there to, to do the best, to play the harp as best as I could. And um, so I had some friends that were, you know, supported me in that. Mm -hmm. And that's and that's great uh, to hear. And, and basically, and did you see things changing over the years in that regard? I mean, having more African American musicians coming into the orchestras and more women as well. So did you see that changes over the years? And how 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 long was that change for for to, to happen? Well, when I auditioned for the BSO in 1969, there were four or five women in the orchestra and no black players. So when I got the job, I was the first tenured black player, but uh, also they had begun using the screen for auditioning. So everybody auditioned behind a screen, the idea being to make uh, the, the situation more equitable for everyone so that you wouldn't see, you wouldn't be prejudiced against because of your race or because of your sex or what, whatever. And so the screen actually helped women get jobs because now in the Boston Symphony after, what is that, 1969 to now, that's... Uh, 51 50 years, years. Yeah. <laughs> um, there is still only one black player in the BSO because when I left, o Owen Young had been there for about 20 years. So there were two of us. And then when I left, there still now is only one. But there is about, I don't even know anymore, 40, 45 women. So the screen definitely helped with bringing more women in, but it hasn't yet helped with bringing more people of color, unfortunately, hopefully, mm -hmm. eventually that'll happen. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm certain that things will, will slowly evolve to a point where more diversity will be brought, also in such classical institutions and which are still predominantly, you know, white male driven in many ways. So, but I think the sea change starting to happen, you know, in many ways. So, uh, talking about your arrival in Boston, in 1969. So you joined one of the world's greatest symphony orchestras. And so how, how was your reaction? Uh, were you particularly excited to be in such a big, important uh, classical institutions like the BSO? Absolutely. Absolutely. It was a real thrill to be in. I mean, the BSO, even back then, was known to be one of the great orchestras of the world. So it was very exciting for, for me um, to arrive there. Sometimes uh, I heard some strange comments from some of my colleagues, but, uh, you know, I just kind of dusted them off and forgot about <laughs> it.
So let's try to flash forward or flash back maybe uh, to uh, 1980 when John Williams arrived uh, and accepted to be the principal conductor of the Boston Pops for, for which you were as well the principal harp. Um, so he was appointed uh, as the Pops music director and it was a kind of a surprise in many ways for many people because he was this you know, successful and mm, quite well-known Hollywood film composer coming to Boston and to one of the most classically uh, minded institutions in the United States, even though it was for the Pops. Uh, so how, do you remember how the orchestra reacted, uh, you know, seeing this Hollywood composer coming to the podium of the Symphony Hall in Boston? How was your reaction, for example? Well, the funny thing about it, it was such a contrast to what we had had because of course, Arthur Fiedler yeah. had been there forever. Arthur Fiedler was the one that was responsible for me taking the audition in Boston because oh, really? he, he had come to guest conduct in Washington okay. and liked my playing. And he called me into the room and said, I'd really like you to audition for the Boston Pops and the BSO. And so I did and won the job, but he was such a character. And I remember when I first went from Washington to Boston and our first pops rehearsal, um, of course, when, when Arthur Fiedler came to guest conduct in, in Washington, he was very well-mannered and all. And of course the players were well-mannered with him. But when the first rehearsal of the Boston pops started, when all the players there uh, knew him, uh, it was it was quite something. It was quite amazing. They, I was sitting there, and all of a sudden, I would see paper airplanes being flown across the stage, and he <laughs> was getting furious. And then it, he would walk off the stage. I mean, this this was a traditional pops re rehearsal uh, <laughs> with all this this chaos and and anger toward the players and players toward him. So when John Williams came, to me, it was really a breath of fresh air because he was definitely serious. He was definitely um, knew what he was doing. He knew what he wanted and he knew how to get it. And I think the players really respected him.
how do you see Jones evolving uh, as a conductor in that regard? I mean, uh, did you notice any changes or, or evolution in his conducting style, for example, or how he worked with the orchestra in rehearsal or in how he shape he shapes the performance of a piece in the rehearsal. So so how do you see his his progress really? Because for him it was quite a challenge, I think, because he was accustomed to conduct mostly in studio. And the studio environment is a very, very different kind of environment than the than the concert stage. So how many changes did you notice over the years? Because you were there for all the time that he uh, stayed in Boston for, as a principal conductor of the Pops. Well, at first he was mostly doing his own works, which of course he knew quite well. So he didn't have the, the challenge of learning a lot of new classical rep repertoire. But over the years, because he was there for, well, he's still there. <laughs> yeah, he's now conductor laureate, but he was right, right. principal conductor from, I think, of 1980 to 93, I think. Right. So he had to, um, bring in more strictly classical works to the, the repertoire just to, to broaden it. And I think he had to really work at it at first, but he became very good at it. And he even conducted some BSO concerts of all, all more classical works. Yeah. So he definitely grew as a conductor. Um, and, and he has such flexibility to be able to do that. I mean, when, when I think of his, his, his movie music, you think about someone that could write Star Wars and yet could write Schindler's List at the same time is just amazing and could write the cello concerto he wrote for Yo-Yo, oh, yes. the violin concerto. So he really is, and the harp concerto, of course. Yeah. He really is quite flexible and um, obviously an amazing talent. Yeah, and also because the, the the pops format is very peculiar from from what I because I studied a little bit, I did a, some research about how the, how the pops concert is, is constructed. It's three in three parts first, instead of yeah. two. The first part is more like a more classical overture, maybe than a soloist piece, and then there is the big uh, you know the big moment where you have the big guest coming, uh, especially a singer or a, a great soloist or or someone maybe someone from the from Broadway or Hollywood. And then you have the last part, which is mostly show business. So show tunes from Broadway, from movie music and so on. So did he bring also something new, something fresher in your, in your opinion, in terms of maybe commissioning new arrangements or maybe giving you new pieces to perform as well? Oh, oh yes, yes. He, he definitely brought a whole re repertoire of different music that we hadn't played because back in the failure days, it was a lot of Viennese waltzes and um, a lot of uh, uh, and Anderson. Oh, Leroy Anderson, yes. Leroy Anderson type, type works. And now all of a sudden we, we are playing quite a bit of John's things like the big Star Wars or E.T. And, and all of that. Plus he has a lot of composers friends whose music he brought to us. Um, so, so yeah, he, he really expanded the, the repertoire of the pops and of the BSO.
do you have any favorite memories about you know recordings or specific concerts that you did with him over the you know the 1980-93 period because uh, I see that in that time frame he also recorded for example Schindler's List with you right. uh, in Boston right well that that uh, because it has such a beautiful harp part oh, was yes. one of my favorite works to to play um, it's just so such beautiful music and so incredibly well written so that was one of my favorite mem memories and, and just just doing uh, some of his film scores was mm -hmm. a lot of fun especially when you could go back to see see the movie and hear the music and uh, yeah so that was a lot of fun And speaking of John as a composer, how do you see as a musician he he's writing for the instrument in his film music? I mean, how did you react when you opened up the book and see, you know, I guess some challenging harp parts to perform? Uh, so did you notice something that you particularly liked in that regard when playing all his music? Well, a lot of John's music, I won't say all, but quite a bit of John's music did have very extensive harp parts, which was why, and very well-written harp parts, which was why when we, I say we, meaning Jimmy Levine and, and uh, I asked him to write the harp concerto, yeah. he said, oh no, I, I couldn't, the harp is so difficult to write for. And, and I'm thinking to myself, Juan, if you can't write a harp concerto, who can? <laughs> you know, so we finally did persuade him. And, um, you know, you can see by what he came up with that the incredible mind and the incredible talent and uh, skill at writing for the harp, because it's very well well written. It, it was funny, he, uh, he doesn't really do email. So he would send me little bits of the piece and sna by snail mail. So I would go to <laughs> our, our, our mailbox here and open up the mailbox and, oh, there's two, two more, more pages of on willows and virtues, which I guess wasn't named at that time. Yeah. So it was, it was a great deal of fun. And 
very little, a lot of time when a composer writes for the harp because they, most of the time they, they don't play the harp, so they don't yeah. really understand it that well. And a lot of times there's a need to revise a lot of what they wrote, but there was not a lot of need in John's work, except there was one part in the cadenza that you needed to have four hands and four legs in order to play it. So, but uh, he, he was, he's also so uh, understanding and so kind. And um, so he didn't take it personally when I said, well, maybe that's not gonna work. Yeah. And so he revised it or he asked for my help to, to explain what could be done. And so it just went very, very smoothly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because I think that he likes to work with uh, specifically with a soloist since he wrote so much uh, concerti, you know, for, for specific people. And you were right. certainly one of the person that he had in mind when he, he basically dedicated the piece to you. I mean, he was knowing that despite the concert work has uh, some kind of a reference when, with, you know, the first movement is based on a, a that uh, quote from the one of the psalm from the bible uh, and then the second movement that is inspired by a, a poem by robert frost so he, he had those things that probably were the, the ignition i guess for him to to start to write but he was writing something for you and and how do you see that i mean how much of yourself do you, do you see in the piece i mean uh, did, did you see some kind of a mirror in front of you when you started to, to learn the piece in some way? I, I can't necessarily say, say that, mm -hmm. uh, except to say that it was, and he knows it, it was extremely challenging, an extremely challenging piece, especially the second movement, because it jumped all over the place and yeah. there was no pattern. So... Uh, I guess he didn't want to make it too easy for for me, <laughs> but um, and then and then at toward the end of or, or right before I had to perform it, I decided that I was going to play it from from memory. Oh wow! And the, he was absolutely shocked because he thought, and he even kept saying to me, "What's going to happen after you play this piece? No one else is going to be able to play it." And I would think to myself, "Oh." <laughs> But uh, then I did, and, and he, he was very, very shocked that I was able, because as I said, there, there were no patterns in it. So it was difficult to, mm -hmm. to memorize, to, to learn, but a real joy to play. And how was your reaction to the music? I mean, the first movement is really a kind of a dreamy, atmospheric, lots of chromatic scales. I, I say it's a fountain of notes. You see like all these... Uh, notes coming from from you know it's very flowing but it's, but it's always very also wistful it's slowly ta and gently taking you by hand and giving you this beautiful uh, sensation and by contrast instead the second movement is very quick very athletic uh, you know both in terms of the construction of the music but also for you to play it's a very athletic piece well um, as you said the first movement was much more uh, laid back and kind of soulful al mm -hmm. almost. So beautiful sounds, beautiful harmonies, beautiful glissandi. And, and so it was able to be very, uh, you know, but my, I concerned my, myself on trying to make the most beautiful sounds I could. Mm -hmm. 
in, in the context of a willow tree. <laughs> <laughs> second movement was um was was fun to play eventually you know because <laughs> it jumped all over the place and uh you know so so it was like and he he mentioned in the frost poem it's like a little boy swinging from the trees so when i would play that i would think of it that that way it was very uh, almost like swinging and a little bit of a jazz element to it too mm which made it very much more fun. John grew up when he was a youngster as a jazz man, you know, playing jazz piano uh, right. and, and with, with also with many of the greats of the jazz. I mean, uh, he, he played with Harry Mancini, but also with other great jazzmen from, from the 1950s and 60s era. So the fact that he's able to put some of that jazz element into, you know, a serious classical piece is very interesting in that regard. I mean, um, and also... 
I'm thinking about the fact that he called this concert as a, a celebration of a woman's life, in, and specifically your your life. I mean, uh, do you think he draw inspiration specific, specifically from you in the sense that do you see yourself in the piece or do you think that this is something that other harp players in in the future can can take and maybe make their own? Um, I'm sure that there there will be harp players that will try to make it their own. <laughs> Whether they succeed or not, I don't know. But I mean, obviously, it was an incredible honor for him to dedicate this piece to me and for him to say those wonderful things that he said about me. I mean, one of the snippets of, of, of pages that, that I got when I went to the mailbox and there was another few pages at, at the bottom, he wrote, you know, I'm your biggest fan. <laughs> so, I mean, all I could think to myself was if John Williams is my biggest fan, I'm not doing too badly. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. I know. Yeah. Certainly so, but you work with so many other great conductors. I mean, from Seiji Zawa to the, all the other greats that came to Boston to conduct. I mean, you had really an amazing, incredible career. think uh, John's music for the concert stage is more revealing of his inner side in a way uh, so do you think his it reveals more of his private persona as opposed to his you know film side I mean where he has to accompany these big uh, spectacles of, of special effects movies like Star Wars or Indiana Jones and and he's great at that I mean I mean but but do you think his concert music is more like uh, showing a more private side of his musical soul? Yes, I think so. I think so. Because, uh, I mean, I often think about Schindler's List again. I mean, who could have written that besides John, John Williams? That really shows his inner self because he obviously was touched by the story. And uh, it, just, it just shows who he is. And I think that you found that a lot in his... his uh, the concerto that he wrote for for people it, it was very much more about him than than about the grand um, themes that he had to write for films and i also think that uh, even when he's writing for movies he always again he still writes for people this is something i always also told to other uh, musicians who, who i spoke to um in the sense that even when he he's working you know for a movie score for steven spielberg for example I mean, he's writing f for him, you know, of course he is serving the story and the narrative of the, of the film itself, but at the same time, he cares about the relationship with the people. And Steven Spielberg, for example, is a 
we all know that he's very very dear to him they are great friends and great collaborators they have they are very much in tune they, they, they are great minds who thinks very much alike in many ways and and in this sense i'd like to ask you about a piece that he wrote for you uh, from the score for E.T., he basically took one of the themes uh, for E.T., the extraterrestrial, and he rewrote that theme as a big harp solo piece, which he called uh, Stargazers, I think. Uh, do yes. you remember that one? Absolutely, because I, I just played it, uh, not just, but I played it before I retired, I believe. It might have been the same year I retired, either 2009 yeah. or 2008, yeah, yeah. Some, something like that. And... Uh, I think it was the first time I had played it. I played it twice, once during the pop season and once during the, the Tanglewood season. Oh, yes. Yeah. But that's another one that's just a just a beautiful work and uh very very it, it, it paints a picture. Yeah. A, a lot of John's music paints a picture. Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, so it's so great. I mean it's one I think one of my favorite themes from 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 ET. You know, besides, you know, the great flying theme, which is, of course, absolutely right. yeah. uh, soulful and, you know, stirring in many ways. But this one is more like a love theme, I always said, because yeah. I think in the movie relates to the, uh, the relationship between the little boy and E.T. himself. The harp piece that he from a film score that he adapted as a concert piece was the from the beautiful, absolutely beautiful score for Angela's Ashes. 
where he wrote this another huge a cappella solo piece for harp and a lot of cello also oh yes because yo 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 ma did the cello part And that is another uh, wonderful example of him taking uh, something he wrote for the movies and adapted for the concert stage. So do you think he has a special uh, knack for that? I mean, do, do, do you think his music is especially good in the sense that he can stand on its own without uh, you know, the visuals and, and, and still be a great piece of music? Absolutely. Absolutely, and, and uh, I also think his, his music is going to last for a long, long time. You know, orchestras will be playing it for years to come.
I'd love to ask you about, you know, the the role of the harp. I mean, I think John wrote other, you know, concert pieces, not specifically for the harp, but where the harp has a big role. I mean, I listened recently to a piece called Tree Song, which was a kind of a violin concerto he wrote for Gil Shaham. Yes. That was premiered in Boston, and then he also recorded it uh, in Symphony Hall with, with you, the BSO. And you had a lot to play in that yes, piece too. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And uh, there are some some others that that he really you know had a, a lot to say for the harp, which was nice. Yeah, I think also the the viola concerto. Right. I think he wrote he wrote a beautiful duet for viola and harp. Yes. So basically, we can say that he's really one of your biggest fans. <laughs> and I'm wrote... one of his biggest fans too, so. <laughs> So we, we need John to write another harp concerto so that I can <laughs> go around the country again. <laughs> I know that he, he 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 can be sometimes you know you have to nag him a lot. You know, yeah. you, you know I heard this story that you, you you started asking him writing something for you for many years before yeah. he finally decided that okay I have the time and the, the the energy I want to put into this thing. But so how how did, did you did you react when he finally said yes? Okay, I'm gonna do it. <laughs> well, I'm thrilled, absolutely thrilled, and obviously very very honored because he was definitely my first choice and basically my only choice um, of someone that I wanted to do it. So I was thrilled when he finally agreed. Yeah, and 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 what a beautiful gift I guess it was when when you finally received the. The you know the, the finished piece and and then started to to perform. I saw a video on on, on YouTube where there is a I have a small snippet where of you working with him and even I think James Levine as well, who was the yeah. conductor who premiered the the piece and working all three together. And, and so tell me about how that works. I mean, was there a lot of back and forth between you and John in terms of? changing things or maybe just a few things but all over the, the the process the creative process 
Well, um, that rehearsal with John and Jimmy was uh, the summer of 2009. The, the performances were, were going to be in 2009. So it was a few months before that. And so we were, we were just going through it to see how things would work. And basically, as I said, everything worked except for a few places in the cadenza that he had done did things that were too difficult, but we were able to work them, them out. And uh, Jimmy Levine seemed very pleased with the, with the concerto also. Yeah, yeah, he, in that video he says, he says something like, uh, you know, it's so fresh that it doesn't remind any other harp piece. You know, it's very- It's true. Yeah, yeah, it's very original. So, uh, do you do you prefer to to perform within the symphony orchestra or more in chamber groups? Because you did also a lot of chamber music in, during your years in Boston with the Boston Symphony chamber players. So, or maybe if you don't have a specific preference, how do you see the difference between you know being in a large environment with many other musicians versus you know being in a small intimate group? Well, um, I was with the large orchestra in Boston for 40 years and three years in, in Washington. Yeah. So I felt that it was time to retire to, uh, I mean, it's very time consuming. You have to go where they tell you to go and play what they tell you to play and all of that. So I wanted more freedom and I wanted more opportunity to, well, my, my husband and I to spend time in, in Florida where, where we are now and all. So once I did retire from the symphony, my choices basically were to play chamber music or to do solos with, with, with orchestra. And after I retired in 09, I mean, I think I played the John Williams concerto maybe 20 times after I left the BSO because wow. that, that was the other thing that happened is orchestras, smaller orchestras would hear about this piece and would want to do it. And of course, who else knew it but me? <laughs> so I kept <laughs> get, getting hired to do these concerts, which was great, it was wonderful. So I did that for many years and also chamber music. Now I'm basically just playing chamber music. I, I did a, a whole uh, concert recently of Piazzolla's music. 
Oh, I also fantastic. Piazzoli, yeah. And it was with a, a group called Sarasota Contemporary Dance. And I had a former student of mine write arrangements for harp, bandonian, and violin. And so we, we had an entire concert with the, the dancers doing Piazzolo's music. So that was a lot of fun also. repertoire for the harp is maybe it's not as huge as you know piano or violin of course but but there are lots of you know big staples in the repertoire like the you know the Ginastera concerto is very you know uh, also Debussy wrote some fantastic harp music and then there is also Ravel you know uh, do you have any other favorites in your in your repertoire I mean from the classical era but also from the contemporary era well, I have played the Hinostera um, quite a few times as, as recently as the summer of 2019. I played it at Tanglewood with the Boston University Tanglewood Institute or mm-hmm. Orchestra. But I also played it a few years before that in Argentina with the Buenos Aires Sym- Symphony uh, to celebrate Hinostera's 100th anniversary of his birth. And so I've played that quite a few times. That's one of my favorites. And I have to put Piazzolla now on the list. And of course, um, John's piece also. And then there are the, the staples like Debussy dances, Ravel, Introduction, Allegro, the Mozart, Flute and Harp Concerto. So th- those are the, the um, meat and potatoes of the harp rep- repertoire. I have a, a CD with a beautiful harp concerto written by a young guy named Kevin Casca was uh, oh, very yeah. and then it's a beautiful piece i mean it's a uh, i think it's in on a cd doubled with a uh, piece by john williams it's a, i think a concerto yeah. for trumpet and there is this it's a beautiful piece i mean and and probably many people don't know it exactly. because i guess it's not very often performed i guess but it's really beautiful music very tonal very lyrical i i did the recording of kevin's piece but I've never performed it. You know, no, no one's ever asked me to, to perform it. Never? Never. I've never wow. performed it, which is why I was saying when John wrote his concerto and all these orchestras were asking me to perform it, it was, it was uh, not surprising, but it was, I mean, it was John Williams. It's not me. It was John Williams. <laughs> <laughs> but the, the Kevin Casca is a beautiful piece. He also, Kevin, wrote a concerto for three harps. Oh, really? harp trio called Knights of the Red Branch, Mm. which uh, I performed with Paula Page, who's the principal harpist of Houston. 
and um, Susan Diedrich, the principal harpist of Dallas at the time. Mm-hmm. And we performed it in Philadelphia once, and we also performed it at the Harp Convention in uh, wow. Vancouver. I have to, to look for it because I guess it's beautiful as well. Yeah, it's a very nice piece also. He's a very young but very talented uh, composer. Exactly. I guess he, he works in Hollywood yeah. assisting other uh, big name composers, but he's a very fine composer on, on his own. I mean, fantastic, uh, talented guy. I'd love to ask you, Anne, if you have any favorite memories or maybe even recordings, because, you know, John did a lot of also not just, you know, live concerts with, with the Pops during his years as a principal conductor, but also many recordings. You know, he recorded a lot of albums. Some, some years I saw that he released even two or three albums in the same year. So for you, I guess it was very demanding, I guess, the schedule, you know, doing both the concerts and the recordings because he was there just for a few months over the years because the other, all the other time was in spending, spending in Los Angeles writing for Hollywood uh, movies. But so how, how hard was that? The, the, the thing that was difficult about it is when you play the symphony season, you don't spend a lot of time playing Glissandi, you know, running your fingers up and down the, uh, the strings. And then all of a sudden pop speaking comes and you're doing a recording. And one of the most important parts of the recording or of the piece is these beautiful glissandos. But by the time the day is over, your fingers are just about bleeding. And, <laughs> you know, because it's, it's so painful to do that over and over. And for a recording, a lot of times they say, well, more harp. And you're like, oh, <laughs> I'm dying here. <laughs> So I can't remember specific pieces or specific kinds, okay. but I, I always enjoyed it. You know, it was always just great working with John. Thank you. 
I'd love also just to talk a little bit more about Schindler's List because uh, that score, I think, is very special to John, as you were saying before, but also to many people around the world. It's, it's really considered one of the, his best works. Um, so there is a lot of harp, harp parts in that score, as you were saying before, but also lots of duet with that incredible violinist uh, Itzhak Perlman. So uh, what do you remember about right. working together, you know, having those beautiful duets with Itzhak? Oh, I mean, I mean, it was great. Uh, he's such an incredible player. And what John wrote, you know, the duos that he wrote between the harp and the, the violin worked so well. So, I mean, I've played it with many other times with different violinists, both in the BSO and out. But that was very special because it was the first time. And we actually went back to see the movie. It was re mm -hmm. put out again recent, well, a few years ago. We went back to see it. And, and it was just, just as rewarding then as, as it was back when I, when I played it. Yeah. And, and I guess it was very special because, you know, usually film scores are recorded, you know, in a studio environment. So it's very different kind of situation. And instead, Schindler's was recorded, you know, in the beautiful symphony hall. So even the sound, I guess, is very different. And, you know, you know, having the sound of that beautiful hall coming uh, at you while you were playing so such sensitive music. I mean, how much important is the environment in that regard? Oh, it's it's absolutely very very important. And uh, I mean, it, it was nice for us because. Symphony Hall was our home, you know, so we, you didn't have to leave your home and go into a studio to record. It was, it was being in, in your own home and you get used over the years, you get used to projecting in that kind of sound. And, and so it was very comfortable. I'll, I'll never forget when I went to, to audition for the BSO first time and I was on the stage of Symphony Hall. I had come from Washington where we played at Constitution Hall which was basically a speaker's hall and not a music mm -hmm. hall. And I sat down behind the harp to warm up and I heard the sound came out of the harp and, and I, I thought to myself, is that me? Because <laughs> <laughs> it was just so different. It's such a wonderful sounding hall. And so therefore, when, when we did a recording like Schindler's List in that hall and everybody there knew the, what the hall could do and knew how to, how to, how to work with it, how to make, make it sound good um then it was it was really a, just a real treat
I've been there just once in Boston at Symphony Hall in 2017, so you weren't uh, right. there, but 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 it, but it was beautiful. I, I I went there to see a concert of John's music he was conducting uh, together. He, he did the second half. The first half was Keith Lockhart, and the second half was him. But it was absolutely you know such a beautiful sound, a beautiful hall, and of course you know the orchestra was absolutely amazing. And I'd love to ask you one final thing, Anne, about your career in as a teacher. You know, you you spent you know besides your great, amazing career as a musician, you also you spent at the same time lots of time teaching young harpists all of you know getting in touch with their own instruments. So how important was for that? You know, getting back to to younger people and giving them you know, a leeway to you know maybe to a great career. Oh, it was it was very important and very exciting. Um, I started teaching when I was in Washington with the National Symphony, which would have been around 1966-67. And I would drive from Washington to Philadelphia or the outskirts where they had a, a summer program called the Temple University Music Program at the time. And so that's when I had my first experience with working with young folks. And of course, when I left Washington and I went to Boston and taught at the New England Conservatory and Boston University, it's really a great deal of fun to work with young, young folks. And it's also um, educational because as a teacher, you learn a great deal by watching or working with these, these young folks. But what um, really um, impressed me, I guess I would say, was when I was given an award by the League of American Orchestras called the Gold Baton Award, which had been given to Eugene Normandy and Aaron Copeland, Leonard Bernstein, all these great folks. And I got it in, I guess it was 2018. And I had to make a speech and I played Debussy dances. And then uh, I was, as I was leaving, there was this whole line of young folks, not harpists, but, you know, oboists or vi violinists, all Af African-American who came up to me one by one and said, you know, you're the reason that I'm in classical music because I used to watch you on Evening at Symphony and Evening at Pops. And, and uh, one, one guy said, I, th I thought all harpists um, looked like you. <laughs> So, I mean, that was very rewarding. And also, um, it's also rewarding to me that some of my African-American students, of which I didn't have a lot, but the few that I did have are all doing very well. And uh, so that makes me very proud also. And hopefully, you know, there, there will be a greater representation of people of color in sym symphony orchestras and uh, I look forward to that day yeah and, and like I was saying uh, at the opening of our conversation uh, you you really were and are a pioneer really I'm very happy that we touched about this final things that we are saying because I think it really you were a pioneer and, and a great woman so Johns was very right when when he said well let's celebrate this great woman who is an absent pilot thank you very much
one final thing. Uh, I always close my conversation asking my guests uh, what they think John's legacy will be. I mean, you were saying before, uh, you know, his music will live on for many years. So what do you think will be John's legacy in terms of, you know, inspiration that he will leave to people in the future? Just the wealth of what he has written, the, the uh, different kinds of music, the film scores, the classical pieces, the, uh, I mean, he he's just has, has such a wealth of, of music and wonderful music. So I think it will be played by symphonies and chamber music groups and for, for years and years to come. I mean, he could be the next Beethoven even, you know, we're still playing Beethoven. So they may be playing John Williams in a couple hundred years too. So uh, it, he certainly, it, it would be worth it. And that's a, a, beautiful, a beautiful way to, to cap off our uh, conversation. And really, I really enjoyed talking with you. Uh, thank you for, for sharing your memories and your uh, artistry with me and about your amazing career and also your work with John. Well, thank, thank you for having me and take care. You too. Bye-bye. Thanks to Anne Obson Pilot for her time and generosity. Visit thelegacyofjohnwilliams.com for more articles, interviews and special content. Thank you for listening. Until the next episode of The Legacy of John Williams podcast. Thank you.